Hello and welcome to Cypher Uncut, a podcast for developers about building great products. Today, I'm excited to welcome Gelmo Rauch. Gelmo, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Great. Please just uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, so I'm the CEO and co-founder of Vercel, the company behind Next.js, one of the most popular ways of developing modern front-end applications and websites. And I have a career in open source and developer tools. That's always been my passion and uh, happy to uh, have the opportunity now to help a lot of teams with their front-end infrastructure tooling and edge platform requirements. Great. So for the listeners who might not be familiar with Vercel and Next.js, can you give us a brief pitch about what your company does and what Next.js is for? For sure. So over the past decade, we've seen a ton of investment into great ways of creating backends and great ways of, funny enough, not creating backends. So we've seen the emergence of Kubernetes and ways of deploying different types of API services and GraphQL services. On the other hand, by not creating backends, I mean, we've seen the emergence of Stripe, Twilio, Auth0, all these amazing backends as a service. And as a result, what we identified now five years ago, one of the emergent opportunities where the most difference can be made with your product and your company today is with the front end, because that's where every visitor comes through to meet your brand, to try your product, and even use your backend, right? Like every backend needs a great interface. So we decided to create an open source framework called Next.js, which brings all the benefits of React to the table. So React is the open source UI library that Facebook open sourced and has now become the most popular way of creating fronts. But on top of that, we build an entire ecosystem of tools, workflows, and a global CDN such that you can not only create your front-end, but deploy it in such a way that is as fast as possible to the end user. So today, front-end teams at companies like Washington Post, Airbnb, TripAdvisor have now standardized on Next.js and Vercel to build, de- develop, preview, and ship their front-end experiences. Great. Yeah, you mentioned Kubernetes and Docker. And to be honest, um, majority of time on this podcast, we do spend talking about containers in one way or another, which is great how that space has you know standardized, to say, and made some improvements. Totally. I myself have a background in Rails, you know, from roughly 10 years ago. And after that, I did some work with Elixir. And for the front-end side, there have been, you know, every few years, a couple of moves into standardizing, but then things change a bit. And yeah, over the time, I have seen many patterns, but what Vercel and NextGens are bringing to the table is, from my perspective, pushing things to the next level. Also, majority of the people that are you know, using Sanford are running one or another type of a monolith today. Totally. What would be the pitch for us? How we can understand better what NetJS is bringing to the table in the front-end area? Yeah, that's a great setup. You mentioned standardization, right? And at the end of the day, none of the things that we use for building backends and infrastructure today are real standards. They're de facto standards that the industry has come up with. And from my observation, I would say that a similar thing has started to happen in front end where the de facto standard building block 
of the front-end universe has become the React component. So teams are now able to create design systems, brand systems, styling guidelines, and even behavior, and basically create standards for their teams in the form of React components. And then they can reuse those building blocks. I call them Lego for adults. Paul Graham famously said that in his mind, Lisp was Lego for adults, which I think is true to some extent because of S expressions and how composable they are. (laughs) But I would say that the true Lego for adults is React because the pieces just click perfectly together, right? Like that never happened, especially you coming from Rails, you're probably used to, you know, jQuery never had a good fit within that Rails universe. You know, everything in Rails clicked perfectly together, but if you're going to build, for example, a tooltip, right, using JavaScript and jQuery, it's really hard to say, okay, this is my tooltip component. This is how I can visually test it without any state, without any interaction. Okay, this is how I bring it alive. This is how I test it. This is how I isolate it, et cetera, et cetera. So teams, front teams and teams in general throughout the world have now seen at the light, so to speak, with this emergence of the React component. But the problem that remained was companies don't build their websites and applications with just components. They need more powerful frameworks around that primitive, right? So they need routing systems and styling systems and state management systems and different ways of composing applications together and building them. And that's where sort of Next.js emerged. Our fundamental primitive in Next.js is the page. So you start by creating a page. That page can use and export React components. And then we make it super easy for teams to like then build and push those pages that they create to a global edge network. So the other big distinction between the backend world and this nascent frontend world is it's not that your application lives in a particular cluster in a particular region. Your frontend is globally distributed and that gives you the ability to collocate the assets, the content, the pages, the data, right next to where your visitors are. Hey everyone, Sanford has published an open source book called CICD with Docker and Kubernetes. It combines just the right amount of best practices and practical advice for shipping cloud native apps. Download your free copy today at sanfordci.com. As you were describing how some things in the backend world were, let's say, taken care of, were thought through, one way I would describe that, you know, you mentioned jQuery and everything else that played in that arena was, it was just very easy to mess up things. Right. You mentioned the simple tooltip. There are so many things that you can do wrong. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and put those pieces together that over time, just by the software erosion, just, you know, broke apart. It's also the switch from imperative to declarative, right? So I remember the days of backend where we would SSH into an EC2 instance mm-hmm. and then boot up a server. And then, if, and then if the server crashed or the EC2 instance disappeared, there was nothing that was controlling for that. There was nothing that was recovering because you had declared 
your intention as a DevOps engineer or as a system administrator or even as a developer, you didn't declare your intention. You run a series of imperative commands and that was it. And that then evolved into easier ways of writing imperative commands with tools like Chef and Puppet. And by the way, I'm way out of my depth here, so I never use those tools, but I can roughly correlate their timeline. And that also happened, I think, with jQuery. So we all used to edit and manipulate the DOM imperatively. And then jQuery just made that same mode of programming easier. Like I remember like I was a user and I was a promoter in a lot of projects. Uh, sorry, all the projects that I promoted into, but I would say, you know, oh, look at how easy it is to write the same DOM mutations, right? Like we would use the target dollar, some CSS selector. And then instead of writing add event listener, which is so long, we would write on. Yeah. Or not even, we write like click and pass a function, right? I've seen now in my long career in this space, I've seen that play a, a huge role in FATS coming along, right? And I mentioned FATS in a respectful way because I think jQuery moved us forward in so many ways. But, you know, typing fewer characters can be a heuristic for success. You say, okay, my technology is just way easier to write. But I think there has to be a lot more substance behind it. And a lot of people have asked us from time to time, hey, why are you building a business on top of, you know, front-end technologies that change so often? Because they remember having been on jQuery and then they remember moving to another promising thing. But I do think that even though Vercel is a front-end platform for more than just Next.js, I do think that what has proven about React and Next.js to be very long-lived and a great long-term investment is that switch from better ways to program, not just fewer characters, but this functional approach, this declarative approach. And that's, I think, what's driving this long-lived enthusiasm for tools like Terraform and Kubernetes, because they apply that new mindset for things that make our systems more reliable. Yeah. And in terms of those timelines and generally adoption, what do you see as maybe your main target persona in terms of people who are moving and adopting this new way of writing front-ends? That's a great question. So what we're observing today is, back to your point about monolith, a lot of our customers are moving from, and let's say the famous like breaking down the monolith, right? So they have a technology like Ruby on Rails that has some front-end support, but it's limited, right? The tasteful way of using systems like PHP, WordPress, Ruby on Rails, Drupal, it never involved a lot of front-end sophistication through component systems and React being a first-class citizen rather than an add-on that comes later. So what we're seeing is a lot of companies breaking down the monolith. They're retaining their backend API that talks HTTP, gRPC, GraphQL, JSON RPC, what have you. And then they spin up a front-end stack. And that stack is increasingly something like Next.js or Nuxt or other flavor of Svelte or newcoming libraries. And then instead of then creating an ingress inside their cluster and then maintaining an Nginx pod and then juggling with bringing on a CDN and configuring caching and purging the caches when they deploy, they just, you know, sort of 
give control of that front-end repository or that front-end entry point in a monorepo in their main repository, they'll deploy it with a technology like Vercel, where we take care of all the aforementioned concerns where we build it. A very interesting feature is that we preview every change. So when the front-end team pushes to Git, they get back a deploy preview automatically so they can test their changes. They can collaborate with the rest of the team. So in terms of the persona, what's been interesting has been to see that the front-end engineer is very motivated to hop on technologies like Next.js and platforms like Vercel out of self-interest, right? Because they have a shorter feedback loop, they push and they get their URL. A lot of web APIs are best tested in production nowadays, right? So a lot of features are not even enabled on the web browser today if you don't have SSL. So Vercel has always SSL on and takes care of all these infrastructure concerns. But there's actually something very interesting that happens also for the rest of the team. Because when you break down the monolith, you can now make your front-end consume any API in the world, whether it's the API that your team provides or whether it's an emergent API that you can just buy, right? So the best example here would be a headless CMS. When the front engineer chooses or participates in choosing a headless CMS to power the content, sort of the text, right? The content workflows of their front end, they can now enable the rest of the company to contribute to that front end. So instead of you know writing a bunch of strings that get ossified in a Git repository, it's almost like they're breathing life into their front end in a way where everybody else can participate. So the persona is not really just the front end developer, mm-hmm. but it's also this intense real time collaboration with the rest of the organization, whether it's because they're sharing deploy previews and different stakeholders within the company can comment early on in the development process about you know, what the product feels like and what it looks like. And I want to emphasize that because the world of front-end is a lot about experience, right? Like when I work on thinking about back-end systems, frankly, I don't want to oversimplify things, but I think a lot about just throughput and latency, right? I think about, okay, this message queue can push through this number of messages in this amount of time. And then I think about things like availability and reliability and what are the best ways to expose my data to more teams and more people. But when I'm a front-end person, you know, it's even hard to come up with one metric for performance because one thing that's super interesting is that a front-end is almost never done rendering, especially a modern front-end, right? Like when I think about an API, I think about the P99 response. Okay, this API responds in 200 milliseconds. But what is the equivalent of that for a front-end, right? Like a front-end is all about experience. And I think the closest to having metrics, which is the web vitals that Google has created, they still rely on a lot of heuristics. So with this kind of deploy preview primitive that we're helping popularize, the team happens to collaborate on the product and they get to experience and feel out the product earlier on in the software lifecycle. Yeah, you touched on a couple of very important topics I want to briefly get back to. So maybe first, this last one. Yes, it's much easier to model what a good API is 
So there are a couple of, you know, integers or floating point numbers right? that you can describe that system in. And yes, yes, it's much harder to describe a front-end or definitely not easy as a back-end part. Connecting with what you said about headless CMS, as we also mentioned in the prep call, I can completely relate to that. I remember us connecting our root domain to Rails application and then powering our website. And then after that, we were, you know, attracted to let's get something, you know, simple that can live in its own repository, not connected to any like, you know, programming language. Then we took Jekyll. And from there, you know, we were kind of being a small team, wanted to even more, let's say, detach that marketing team from those, you know, development capacities that we have. We moved to WordPress, which could be like... um, you know, from some perspective, like when we move from Elixir to Java <laughs> yeah, in terms of the generation of technologies, but we were kind of, to be honest, too tired of being bothered with that and let the team decide how they can publish the content easily. And that is exactly what you referred to. Yeah, absolutely. So a great example there is we're seeing a lot of people build frontends that consume WordPress data through an API and many other systems like it. And they can mix and match what systems are getting the data from. And so to your example, let's say that Semaphore standardized on Next.js, you would have a shared component system between your console, your pages, any front-end initiative that you create, you invest in your components. And then I liken it to investing in stocks, right? Like you get compound interest because you create a component once, let's say it's a green button. And people tend to underestimate the complexity that goes into actually a good button. I don't want to get too in the weeds, but it has to respect the desires of your design team. It has to meet accessibility guidelines. It has to meet a certain visual aesthetic that respects your products you know, and your brand, whether it's the typeface, whether it's the amount of padding, what are the interactions that go into it, like what happens when you hover, when you press. For companies that are in the e-commerce space, which is a very successful vertical for us, a good button and a bad button can be the difference between (laughs) more sales or fewer sales. And also not to get even deeper into the weeds, but on iPhone, for example, if you don't program your hover pseudo-selector correctly, iOS will introduce hundreds of milliseconds of latency to render the hover state because they think that If it's defined, we must render it, even though there is no pointer device. So when teams invest into fixing all those problems once, even we can go further into attaching the behavior of the button into tracking scripts for product analytics and marketing analytics. When you work on a component system, you invest in it once, and then every front-end initiative in the future will honor and take advantage of that investment. And that doesn't mean that you throw WordPress away. Doesn't mean that you throw your existing REST API that is built on Rails away. I think that's where a lot of misconceptions have existed in this world of revolutionizing developer experience because I think an approach many years ago was, okay, you have to reinvent everything. You have to switch to this entire new stack. You have to change everything completely. Whereas what we've seen be a lot more successful is, okay, start with just one page, build it on Next.js, then use the Next.js router, for example, to say, okay, 
this page is served by Next.js, and then the rest of the system is served to the legacy front-end system, which is usually your Rails monolith. And now teams actually can get to compare side-by-side -side everything from raw performance, like uh, web vitals, meaning you know how fast is the front-end to render, then the developers get to experience, okay, what is it like to evolve each system and work with it? And then kind of, you know, the whole company gets a taste for whether this is a system that they should invest further in or not. So it's a nice way of sort of testing the waters and adopting these technologies. And increasingly, every one of these systems has evolved over the past few years to support APIs as a first-class citizen, right? So Ruby on Rails for APIs it has a really compelling story. WordPress has a really good story for APIs as well. So the world is also standardizing into this, you know, semi-standard inputs and outputs systems. And that's also fueling a lot of this momentum. Yeah, being nice and playing well with others. <laughs> exactly. Hey, I'm going to take a quick break here and tell you that Semaphore has a new book out called CI/CD with Docker and Kubernetes. If you are looking to deploy cloud-native apps, it's going to show you the most productive way of doing that. And the best of all, it's free. Download your free copy today at samforci.com. At some point, you also mentioned spinning up those staging environments easily. You get just a URL and you mentioned testing and, you know, how you can obviously test something on a production. Yep. Being, let's say, team and people who originated from uh, Rails, you know, generally automated tests and us being a CI providers, that's all like tied together. We have many, many, many hours, more than we actually would want to, talking with customers how to solve testing the, you know, front end and the UIs in a stable way. What are some of the tools and strategies to writing some automated tests that can test these components? That's a great point because what you're touching on is that front-end and back-end have fundamentally different testing requirements and methodologies yeah. and tooling that has become available for each. And that's another further incentive to split the monolith, such that you can leverage best testing solutions for each side of the equation. So on the front-end side, first, as you mentioned, through deploy previews, we've seen an emergence of testing methodologies that test the actual product, the actual result. You get your deploy preview URL, which runs in the same production environment as the rest of your production website, because it's a full CDN, SSL enabled, broadly compression, all the bells and whistles that you require for production, they're also applied to your preview environment. So that means that, for example, if you do end-to-end -end testing, you're now testing the actual thing on a realistic URL before it gets rolled out of production. So a great example here is systems like checklyhq.com integrate very deeply into Vercel such that they detect that a URL has been produced and then they can run headless web browsers running Puppeteer scripts. So Puppeteer is this headless version of Chrome. And as of recently, by the way, the dev tools on your web browser have the ability to record puppeteer scripts for tests. So everybody in the company can sort of create end-to-end uh, -end tests that then get pushed and run in parallel against this preview URL. So that's one methodology that I'm really excited about because when you launch Chrome headlessly and serverlessly, 
first of all, it's ultra fast. And secondly, you get to test the reality of your product, right? So everything has to go well for that test to pass. Your API has to be fast. You know, everything about the front end has to work perfectly. And you're using a real web browser technology. So that's super exciting to me because, again, like front end is a complex beast and it only gets more complex over time as your product evolves. So you get a lot of certainty by testing that deploy URL. Another thing we're seeing is along the same lines is visual testing tools. So because you build a component system, and I was talking about that investment. So what's nice is that you can, it's almost like you can buy a hedge or a protection or insurance for that investment because you can use visual testing tools to take screenshots. And again, using realistic headless web browsers in a completely serverless manner. So you don't have to operate any of this testing infrastructure, which is a huge relief. You can now take photographs, so to speak, of those components, and then no regressions can easily be introduced. There's this funny meme about, you know, there's so many funny memes about how CSS, you move one thing and the entire universe collapses. <laughs> the uh, family guy adjusting the blinds is like how I program my Flexbox, which is very true. That's the thing with CSS, right? It's such a global thing that is so easy to break random parts of the application. So visual testing is an incredible asset to have, and it benefits greatly from this new, basically, world of constantly previewing and making your work accessible to a real web browser. And then there's obviously the more traditional ways of doing integration testing and unit testing. And I also think that, you know, React and Next.js there provide some advantages from a testing standpoint because every time that you control your effects and you model your effects, you'll have a better testing story. So with jQuery, it was kind of hard to write tests because everything is dependent on, you know, sort of arbitrary side effects and it requires tons and tons and tons of mocking. But now React has this other benefit. Again, like to me, it all relates to moving toward this declarative and more functional world, you'll get some testing benefits with that fundamental plumbing as well. So for those that are not so familiar with modern React, modern React is basically a combination of functions and hooks. And the fundamental constraint is that this render function has to be pure. So the way that you attach behavior to the rendering of your UI is through hooks. So this is a very clean way of organizing the world. So when I mentioned that React is Lego for adults, I actually want to take that metaphor further because, you know, an adult might think that Lego is just very primitive and boring. So Lego bricks don't have any special behavior attached to them. They don't respond to interaction. They don't lit up when you touch them. So React components have this idea of also like modeling reproducible behavior that I think is quite fascinating. And as a result, you can be a lot more ambitious with your front end. You can make it a lot more real time. Instead of having to press refresh to get the latest data, you can subscribe to data changes. And that, I think, opens a, realistically a new world of possibility for your product itself. How ambitious can you be with what it does? 
Yeah, I mean, not being deep in this area, I can sense a very big generational change. <laughs> totally. In these technologies and generally the systems, how people think about this. It was very different in, let's say, standard Rails days. One other thing we touched upon prior to our call is, you also mentioned it now, how you can swap different components and they play together. So yes, you can keep maybe 90% of Rails APIs that you developed over the years, but then moving forward, you can rely on some new headless APIs, as you mentioned, headless CMS, also Auth0 and so on. So you are in the first line of this. What's your perspective on these services that are providing these APIs? What's the state of the things right now? Are you happy with what the offering is and what do you see in the future? The trend is very clear, right? Because we said, okay, split the monolith between backend and frontend. And a lot of our audience are probably like, I already did that 10 years ago. And some others know, you know, like people are different levels of the evolution and even requirements. Maybe not everyone needs to specifically do that. But then another step from splitting into backend is splitting into multiple backends, right? So that's where the microservices world sort of emerged, where there's not just one monolithic Ruby Rails API, there might be an authentication service that communicates to that Ruby Rails API. And I think this is kind of the journey that many companies go through as they continue to grow. And for example, companies like Google obviously went through it and they created their own authentication service. It turns out that when you decide to split, you might find that that authentication service that you would create on your own is completely undifferentiated from what a third party is giving you. Yes. <laughs> even line by line of code, or maybe even worse, right? Like the total cost of ownership, but even security, like I would be worried about operating my own authentication service. So when you model the world in terms of like lots of services, you start realizing, hey, service B, okay, that's critical for my business. It's a huge differentiator. Think an AI company that might be running some models and the data in the model, like that's critical to their business. But everybody that uses this AI product needs to log in. They need to log in through a front end. The front end, quote unquote, distributed global microservice could be for sale. And then when they need to log in, the authentication microservice could be Auth0. And then when they actually need to perform their primary function, it's their microservice. And then another set of microservices as well. So. That is a beautiful story to tell. It's a story of specialization. It's a story of reduced toil and frustration and doing what you do best for your customers and your business. But that's an overly simplified story. So to comment on specifically one thing that I've noticed about backend and relying on multiple backends, which is, by the way, an inevitability, because I don't think that any people in the audience are thinking today that they're going to create their own SMTP server to send emails or their own asterisk server to do telephony or send SMS or whatever, or their own, maybe authentication, you know, like some people might have already started with something super, super simple and maybe they're okay with it. But increasingly, you know, you use something like magic.link, which gives you passwordless authentication or use Auth0. But what happens is when you have all these distributed systems, all these network calls, all this state 
in multiple places, I see two things that are very important moving forward. One of them is that you have to understand state very deeply to make really good decisions. So one example here would be, I've seen developers try to naively copy state from system to system, ignoring the consequences of what it would be like to get out of sync. <laughs> what do you do? Like maybe you're trying to copy state because you wanted a faster read, but you don't realize that you're embarking in the journey of essentially creating your own database. And I say that in the truest of senses. I think, you know, you might do a seemingly harmless action and then you incorporated the difficulty of the engineering of a database accidentally. So that's one thing I see. I think you have to be really careful about who you ask for the data once you've decided to piggyback on this system. And by the way, that's for the headless CMS world, I think it's not controversial. It's very simple. You always ask your headless CMS, but you see this more of a pitfall when people use microservices that they need to understand really well that a lot of these microservices are fundamentally databases. And you know you have to be mindful of what are the latency characteristics of this quote-unquote database and what are the consistency contracts or guarantees of this quote-unquote database and why it might not be such a good idea to duplicate their state. The flip side of that too is that when you perform mutations on your backend and those mutations have a series of chained side effects, that relate to those other microservices. The problem of transactional consistency and availability rears its ugly head, so to speak, right? So like the best example here would be when you perform an action like create an order, right? So you say, okay, backend, create an order. And then you say, okay, I wanna track the order with my headless e-commerce system, but also because an order was created, I want to perform these three side effects, like send an email, create an event for the activity log, the audit log, and then like these things accumulate. And then no one really keeps track of, okay, what happens if one of those systems is temporarily down? What happens if there is a network partition? What happens if there is a split brain? Who reconciles the data later? And like who retries and for how long? And who gets paged. And so I think, and I've quoted this essay in the past in my blog, in a blog post called 2019 in Review, that mathematically microservices are objectively worse for availability, right? Like, because you now have to sort of contemplate the chances that your chain of microservices are online. So if you have a system A that talks to system B that talks to system C, well, now, probabilistically speaking, if they all three offer a certain amount of uptime, like 99.9%, you have to understand that you're compounding the risk when it comes down to availability of any of these microservice chains being temporarily offline. What I'm seeing in the future now is a response to this, because I think the benefits of microservices outweigh this risk, is emergence of patterns and systems that will mitigate this risk. And not only will they mitigate the risk, they'll actually make it easier for the developer to write this complex logic that touches hundreds of systems. They might write them even in ways that it makes the systems not look asynchronous at all. So I always refer to syntax and imagine like if 
async and await the keywords in JavaScript or C sharp or whatever disappeared. And you're just enunciating what are all the effects and what are all the business rules. And then that compiles down to a complex infrastructure system that keeps track of the evolution of this state machine and the retrying between the synchronization of the pieces and so on. So long rant, but I think microservices are an incredible thing. I think you always have to be aware of the risks and the benefits. I think it's true for any system that you take a dependency on, but I think the future is very bright. I agree with everything said, especially about this last part about microservices, because we felt it roughly Three years ago, we embarked on a journey moving from Rails monoliths to a microservices-based architecture. And uh, yeah, <laughs> there are many, many, many things that you didn't have to care about Yeah, that you now do. Yep. And nobody tells you those things. And perhaps, by the way, like I think we're all evolving as an industry. I always wonder to what extent the promoters of these systems don't know the gotchas themselves. I don't think anyone has promoted, you know, heaven and then realized that oh like i'm hiding all this like maybe some people a very small percentage of people but i think because i started by enumerating all these benefits of reuse multi-language best of breed solution for each thing and i think those benefits are just amazing and i think that's what's motivating all of these problems to be solved with better systems to ensure consistency better messaging brokers and systems a better observability even, right? So just even knowing what's going on with our systems has always been a challenge. I agree with everything you said about the microservices part. And for us, luckily, we have been practicing building distributed systems for a couple of years prior to this move to microservices. I mean, otherwise, it would be you know, a very frustrating journey. <laughs> there are just so many things that you have to worry about. But our service being very asynchronous and having a lot of long running jobs in the background, it's a bit different. So we are not that, you know, constrained to having all those responses in that transactional manner in terms of how they should respond. Well, uh, great. As you wrapped up nicely, uh, the future looks bright and uh, I'm happy to hear about all these systems, how they are emerging and they are certainly going to help solve a lot of our engineering issues. Good luck with Vercel and the Next.js, and hopefully we'll see you again in the future. Thank you so much. I had a lot of fun. Thank you.